I'm Alex Trepchinski. I'm Angie Check. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I moved my office to my garage. I painted the walls a two-tone, sort of like a tangerine orange, coral, salmon-colored pink two-tone. I put a black glass whiteboard in the center. I moved all the shelves, moved all the junk out of the way. I put a big, giant bookshelf of all the titles that I love to be reminded of, sort of the titans that have come before me. I've got my tobacco station. I've got all my supplements and books that I give away to people. It's all there in one place. Um, and the downside is I'm in my garage and the, the windows are open and I have the breeze coming through, but I also get the dogs and the lawnmowers. So welcome back to the Holistic Opinion Podcast. We are evolving here on this show and I'm proud of that. I feel like I'm in, I'm like really in my element right now. It's really, really groovy. So I uh, had the pleasure of sitting down with Lily Nichols, who's an RDN, and um, she wrote two books that are up on the shelf I just described. The aforementioned shelf above my black dry erase board, the glass board. And um, her two books are called Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes Mellitus. And she is sensational. She was recommended to me either by Rob Wolf or Lindsay Malis of BirthFit. And um, regardless, two people that I, super, I have a lot of respect for in the field. And they both said, you've got to meet Lily. So we sat down, we had a lovely conversation. And holy smokes, we could have gone for hours and hours and hours. But unfortunately, her time was short. She had another, another meeting. And, um, but we packed in so much goodness here. I'm going to have to have her back on the show because, uh, wow. And, and like, you know, why is this even important? Like, why is eating, like, who cares what you eat? You just take a prenatal vitamin, right? Well, yeah, prenatal vitamins are good. And we'll talk about that too. But that's really the fine tuning. You know, you don't take your car to the auto body shop and just get a new paint job whenever like the entire undercarriage is rusting out. And so that's where the diet, the movement, the, the sleep, your breathing, your posture, your hydration how you're treating your body is so much more important than is so important, even if you're going to be taking the highest quality prenatal vitamins, like Fullwell's um, prenatal vitamins. That is the icing on the cake. You also need to bake the cake. And uh, we won't be talking a lot about cake, believe it or not, on this episode. <laughs> Due to the nature of both my and Lily's work, we're, we're not recommending a lot of cake to people, but, uh, you know, indulge once in a while. That's great. What we're talking about here is putting the best stuff into your body, moving as well as you possibly can, sleeping with proper sleep hygienic practices, you know, shutting off your router, mitigating EMF, finding a really good mattress. If you invest in anything, a good mattress is so important, especially if you're going to be a new parent. And of course, Lily is, is a, she's an accomplished dietitian, but she's also a mom and she's been through the system and realizes that us doctors don't have a lot of time and, and nor do we have a lot of education on even the basics of nutrition. It's all about, um, all, everybody who talks about nutrition is always like exercise more, eat less. Well, it's not, it's way more important to that because now you're growing a baby and your body's going to adjust to this pregnancy. It'll find nutrients anywhere it can from your brain, your nervous system, your organs, your bone, your skin. 
And a lot of women feel like they're falling apart. Not to mention at the time of birth, you know, the the wounds don't heal as well. Your pelvis doesn't heal as well. You know, we talk a lot about perineal lacerations in this episode, but your whole pelvis, it takes on a totally different shape. All of that connective tissue, all of the muscle, everything has to work its way back together. And if it, if you're going to support healing, it starts with the very, very basics, which is what are you putting in? So I will let the episode, the interview speak for itself. We've got two sponsors, our ongoing lovely sponsors. First, I mentioned them already, Full Well Fertility. Go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10, and you will save on the best prenatal vitamins on the market. And they've got their Nourished Nerves, which is really a way of easing into relaxation and sleep at night. For new parents, that's a, that's a wink to you. <laughs> I know what it's like. I'm a new parent. Second time around. And then they also make a product called their Vitality and Virility Capsules. And this is actually a formula for men. Remember that roughly 40 to 50% of all infertility issues are related to male sperm count. But it's not just how many sperm you have. It matters how they're swimming. It matters how they're shaped, right? Do you, man who's listening, do you have enough nutritional support in order to produce healthy, vital sperm that will meet that egg when they go on their journey. I won't get into that exactly, how that journey works. If you don't know, you can reach out to me privately because you probably don't want to ask publicly anyways. But when you and your wife copulate and the sperm and the egg meet, are they going to make the magic of a new baby or are you going to fall short? This is as dependent on men as it is on women. So this product, their uh, Full Wells Vitality and, and Virility Supplement, has a wide range of vitamins, A, C, D, E, K, niacin, folate, B6, B12, pantothenic acid, choline, iodine, magnesium, zinc, selenium, manganese, chromium, molybdenum. I always struggle with that one as most English, even native English speakers do. It's all packed in there. There's none of the crappy additives. You've got none of those fillers. It is just straight nutrition and it's provided way above the recommended daily allowance of these vitamins. And if you are, you know, if, if you're privy to this whole issue of male infertility, if you look back 100 years, 150 million healthy, strong, morphologically sound sperm were present in every ejaculate, meaning when you come, there's a ton of swimmers. Nowadays, we consider 30 million normal, and that's because there's so much crap in our environment that has impacted not only our nutritional status, but just the energetics of, of creating these vital little organisms, these little sperms. So go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10, you'll save 10% off your purchase. I can't recommend this product enough. I have so many clients who are going through this journey. And even though their, their infertility docs have told them like, you know, your sperm look fine, we can make it way, 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 way better. And, and, and with time, we generally change what we consider normal. 30 million is, is normal for now. But back in the day, you would have been seen as having very low sperm count. So fullwellfertility.com, code beloved10 will get you 10% off. And then our other sponsor, of course, is my lovely friend James Goodlatte's company, Fit for Birth. Go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, or you just use code beloved and you'll save 20% on any of their coaching programs. And they provide coaching, one-on-one coaching for women at any point in their in their journey in life, whether it's before, during, and after pregnancy. They provide personal coaching with trained instructors in the get in the fit for birth method. Or if you're a coach 
and you want to start honing your skills a little bit to work specifically with those needs of pregnant women, right? You've been told, got to be easy on them and whatnot. You do. And you need to actually know what you're doing. This is not, this is a specialty within exercise coaching. If you went and got your, whatever it's called, the you know exercise sciences certificate, I can't remember the acronym. There's too many of them out there now. That's like you went, to, you went to high school or you went to college and now you've got to get your master's. And if you want to work with pregnant women, again, before, during, or after pregnancy, this is the program for you. So go to getfitforbirth, all spelled out, dot com slash beloved or just use code beloved and you'll save 20% on any of their programs. I'm so excited to have Fullwell and Fit for Birth as our sponsors. Of course, we can't continue doing the show if we don't have companies like them who I am fully in alignment with. Um, backing us up and, and making this possible. So thank you so much for supporting them. Any products that I mentioned that I'm super stoked about, you can find them at belovedholistics.com slash shop and it'll have every product out there, every product that I recommend for my family, for myself, uh, or that I recommend for my clients. And um, you get to s- some fat discounts if you go to the website. So check that out. Um, I, I'm, I've bored you enough with this intro. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Lily Nichols, author of Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily Nichols, thank you so much for coming. It was either Lindsay Malis or Rob Wolf that put us in touch, and they said, you've got to know Lily. And um, had I had your books when I was in residency, my life would have been a lot easier because I could have just said, go and buy this book. Instead, I spent hours counseling people on diabetes and how to eat well in pregnancy. So um, your two books, Real Food and Pregnancy and Real Food, or Real Food for Pregnancy, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I think need to be on everybody's shelf and OBGYNs need to have a box of them to just hand out. So I really, really appreciative of, of your time. I know it's very limited today. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, there's kids running around my house suddenly very loud in the background right when we were it should be the soundtrack of the podcast to be honest so don't worry about that (laughs) (laughs) so there are some OBGYNs who very kindly do in fact have boxes on hand and give them out and I appreciate that from so many angles not only as like a you know clinician who's worked with a lot of pregnant women but also I've have I have two babies and so experiencing prenatal care firsthand it's really disappointing to yeah. just get this pamphlet with mostly outdated information that's mostly focused on foods to avoid. Yeah, um, right. And that's kind of it. That's all you're given. And there's no focus really on preventative care. Yeah. So it's like, okay, we'll see you at this visit until we draw these very limited number of labs or put you through a very limited number of tests. And we, if we find problems then we'll do something, but there's no focus on prevention and there's yeah, you're, you're so right. much that we can do. You're right. It's super reactive. Yeah. We generally don't even get, we don't even take the time to talk about diet and exercise and everything else unless they have a high A1C or they fail that, that one hour, you know, glucose challenge in the, you know, in the first trimester, if they, if they were screened in the first trimester, which we can get into, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I was oftentimes punished because I was going over in my visits as an OBGYN resident. This was back in LA in Kaiser. And um, because they want to get, you need to see 20 patients in the day or whatever. It was probably not that many, but, you know, to spend 15 minutes talking to people about diet and exercise is not nearly enough. And uh, you're right. It's like, don't eat mackerel. Don't eat, you know, um, stay out of your cat's litter box. 
and uh, reviewing what to expect in pregnancy. And if there's time, we'll, you know, we'll talk about the real stuff that matters, which gives people a lot of right. autonomy and personal responsibility as to how they, how they care for themselves. So was that the impetus for you to write these books, your own experience as a pregnant dietitian? Well, actually, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I wrote before I had children. And I guess my career history is a little bit interesting in that I sort of fell into the gestational diabetes world a little bit by accident. That's not typically something that people really specialize in. Um, Usually, it's just prenatal nutrition broadly. And then you see a handful of cases of gestational diabetes. But there happened to be an opening with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, also known as Sweet Success. I'm sure you were familiar with it at, at Kaiser in LA. And uh, so I worked at the state level, like public policy level on uh, gestational diabetes. And so a lot of my like intro into the work was more from like the top down, like sort of research perspective, sure. guidelines perspective. And that's really where I started to understand how important this um, pregnancy complication was for outcomes for baby, not only immediately, but but also for their lifelong metabolic health and how, what a huge uh, difference this is making in, in the current trends with kids being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So yeah, like a, yeah. a child who's born to a mom who has poorly controlled blood sugar faces anywhere from a 6 to 19 fold increased risk of diabetes. <sighs> and a lot of that is like that, that risk is often seen like in adolescence. I mean, we're diagnosing young kids <laughs> with type 2 diabetes, right. um, their pancreas is literally uh, programmed and their metabolic health is programmed in utero. And it was like, holy cow, we can make a massive difference if we just help with blood sugar management. And then I also worked clinically under a perinatologist in LA. We were associated with Harbor UCLA uh, Medical Center. And that doctor had many decades of experience in gestational diabetes. So almost all of the physicians and clinicians in the area would refer to us. This was a very low income setting. Almost everybody was on, you know, medical assistance. Um, so, you know, a specific type of demographic, but my job really was solely gestational diabetes. So when yeah. I say I have like more experience in gestational diabetes than the average dietitian, it's because that's what I saw day in, day out. And I was really fortunate in that role in that the doc was very nutrition forward and she believed we could do more nutritionally. And she's like, our handouts are really old. Whatever you want to do to revise this, like do it. And yeah. so like a good dietitian, I was actually following <laughs> the guidelines at the beginning and then saw how they failed, like at least half of my clients and was like, this is not, this is not working yeah. already as somebody who had been eating more real food, ancestral kind of Western price inspired for like over a decade leading up to this. It was obvious to me that the carbohydrate levels were, you know, far too high. Um, the recommendations were too low in protein, too low in fat, um, just, you know, all the standard dietary guidelines. The food pyramid. Stuff. Yeah, the big giant bottom rung of carbs and then some fats at the top, essentially. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. And so, you know, it was like, why are we giving women who have failed a glucose tolerance test the same amount of carbs <laughs> at every meal? Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, we're yeah. expecting them to have great blood sugar management after this. What? So that's where totally. I really developed the um, really all the information that's in the Real Food for Gestational Diabetes book is is an outpouring from all of those previous years um, working clinically and, and at the public policy level. And I, I saw firsthand with the bureaucracy, you're really not going to be able to implement 
dramatic change in the guidelines from a top-down approach. So yeah. I was like, well, let me just put this out here, put all the research behind it, really explain the safety and what I mean about like a lower carbohydrate diet in pregnancy, because um, that's often misinterpreted, and put it in one place so there's actually a resource here rather than me trying to change it from the top down. That was not going to happen. That's yeah. still not going to happen, yeah, by the way. Right, you have right. to go at it from a grassroots level. I so totally that's agree. what Real Food for Gestational Diabetes was born from. And Real Food for Pregnancy came later. I had already had my first child at that point and was in the midst of postpartum recovery. I started <laughs> writing that at, at about 10 months postpartum. So that certainly... Um, has a lot of a lot of overlap with the gestational diabetes one, but it was like people wanted a book on prenatal nutrition that wasn't all about blood sugar. And once you start getting into it, it's like, oh, well, we have to address this myth about foods to avoid. Oh, no, we have to get into this topic. Oh, we have to talk about this. And that, that kind of turned into a much bigger book and project than I ever imagined. But that book is really looking at many, many more gaps um, that I uncovered in the prenatal nutrition guidelines and looking at newer research and how could we essentially do better than the guidelines on things far more than just, you know, blood sugar and carbohydrate related. So yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a process and I'm still to this day just advocating for change and trying to get new research into the hands of moms and clinicians so we can yeah do better from, from the ground up. Well, it's, it's so much more digestible than if you read ACOG's guidelines. You know, I've got real food for pregnancy here. Real food for GDM is is a little bit shorter, but I mean, even this book alone has plenty on, you know, glycemic load and whatnot. But, eat, you know, if you were to average all the chapters together, I mean, some of these chapters have a hundred plus references. So we should be grateful that there is a trade paperback out there that is so easily digestible. And one thing I will share is <clears throat> you mentioned the fetal programming whereby epigenetically kids develop this this insulin issue even early in life in their adolescence based on how they were the environment that they were exposed to in utero but there's also a good reason that we talk about the toxicity of sugar in pregnancy because people are so concerned about all this toxic stuff whenever sugar is probably the most toxic thing to a developing embryo and it leads to all these cardiac, you know, cardiac malformations, cotyledogenesis, neural tube defects, not to mention higher miscarriage rates, placental issues, growth issues, etc. And what I think I really like about your book is that you don't really start with like, here's the doomsday picture of all the things that can go bad. This is actually a matter of empowering people to not just avoid the bad stuff, but also to make your tissues as healthy and your, your, your overall well-being improve as you're going through this incredible journey of growing a baby and then recovering postpartum. I was the OBGYN for Paul and Angie Check when I was down in San Diego in fellowship at UC San Diego. And they came into the hospital. And if, you, if you're not aware of, of who they are, he has a big holistic lifestyle coaching business based out of Escondido. And they're very much, I mean, they teach people to teach other people about this type of stuff. And yeah. When I did a, I ended up doing a C-section for Angie and I think she was close to 40 at the time. And I'm not sharing any HIPAA information. We've done podcasts on her whole birth story and whatnot. So hi, Angie, if you're listening. <laughs> but I, I commented when I was in the surgery, in the C-section, I remember her tissues being like so healthy, like the muscle was plump. It was juicy, had tons of mitochondria. The skin itself was supple and stretchy. The fascia was rock hard. And I was like, Angie, what do you like do for a living? Like what, what are you doing? She was like, well, I eat a lot of organ meats. We eat a lot of 
we could all grass-fed beef. We eat a lot of fresh wild-caught fish and tons of vegetables and a lot of sweet potato. I love sweet potato. And she was like talking me through this afterwards because I was just so impressed by how at nearly 40, being advanced maternal age, her tissues were so healthy and her mindset was so in tune with the process. She was just all there. And I think that the stuff we put into our body is especially critical given how much of a roller coaster this is, you know, for your body and your mind and your spirit when you're going through pregnancy. So, so we're not just going to talk today about avoiding those bad things. We're also going to talk, be talking about optimizing how you feel and how you perform throughout. So again, thank you for reading, reading this. This is, maybe I'll be one of those clinicians when I have an office that is not my fancy garage in order to pass out, <laughs> pass out books. Anything you wanted to comment on there with, with, with what I just said? Yeah, well, I've actually heard, I was uh, at a midwifery conference a number of years ago and had some midwives commenting about that when they have diabetic clients, how they're much more likely to have really bad tears and not just yeah. a single tear, but the way they described it was like the perineum would like shatter. Mm. That, that's mm-hmm. how they like fracture, just micro tears everywhere, mm. um, which I found really interesting. I, I hadn't heard that before. I'm, I'm not a midwife, right? So I'm not like attending births and seeing these things, but they're like, you know, what could it be? And I'm like, well, you know, you have all these advanced glycation end products and elevated glucose interferes with collagen production. Um, if they're not eating super well with, which often if you're having really elevated blood sugar, typically there's insufficient protein intake going on as well, Mm -hmm. which would be giving Mm -hmm. you the amino acids you need for that collagen. Maybe there's not a lot of fresh foods, not enough vitamin C and other micronutrients needed for that to be really strong. But I I've had that feedback on, on the flip side of what you're describing of tissues being really weak and unhealthy and healing poorly. And I mean, if you have really, you know, the peritoneum, yes, to, to all the natural birth people. Yes. Like it, it is designed to heal, but it is designed to heal when given the raw materials. to actually That's exactly heal. right. Um, yeah. So yeah. you can really mitigate your, your damage to your perineum by eating properly and having good blood sugar balance. And the, this is, these are kind of the points that I try to bring up in the book. I really don't talk a whole lot about the perineum in the book a little bit, maybe, but as a whole, you sometimes need to talk about going wrong to talk about yeah. things, how things can go right. But I do as much as possible on the positive and to keep relaying this message that, yes, of course, there's always things that are going to be out of your control. I'm certainly not saying you can entirely avoid the risk of tearing by you know eating super well. But could you mitigate the damage? Could you heal quicker? Um, with pregnancy complications, could you lower the risk of pregnancy complications? Could you mitigate the severity of them? If they do crop up, are there things that you can do to kind of lessen the symptoms or reduce the amount of medical intervention so that you can, if you choose, to, you know, give birth at home with as few interventions as possible? Hopefully yeah. none. You know, like I'm all for keeping the the need for the medical intervention in any possible way in pregnancy and birth and postpartum as minimal as possible. Um, but I think some people don't really, you can advocate for also autonomy in, in all of these decision-making processes. And, you know, I hundred percent support that. However, if you're not doing the work mm, on mm-hmm. food, lifestyle, nutrition, sleep, whatever, 
no matter what your risk of those things happening is going to go up, no matter who your provider is or where you're choosing to give birth. So can we like bring this down entirely? Yeah. I mean, our rates of maternal mortality and, and uh, pregnancy complications are just absolutely awful yeah, in this country. Terrible. Yeah. Especially considering how much we spend. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, a couple of the big things that always come up are, you know, I have a history of preeclampsia or hemorrhage or my baby didn't grow up. They said the placenta got sick or, you know, gestational diabetes or hyperemesis or even the postpartum recovery, wound dehissing, or like you mentioned, the perineum lacerating, which is the natural tear. Not We're not talking episiotomy. We're talking about this friable tissue just kind of tearing and becoming jagged. And then as an OBGYN who's done like a, a ton of suturing, when you try to suture tissue that's not nourished, your needle doesn't even bring the tissues together. It just goes through. It's, it's, like, it's like when meat goes bad. And I don't want to give people a complex about this, but, but you're exactly right. If you want the autonomy to make as many decisions in your own best interest, based on your own intuition as possible, and you want to avoid these things, which may risk you out of having a home birth based on some state's regulations as to what a midwife can and can't do, if you want that, then the first place to start is as soon as you consider, hey, I'm open to having a baby, you got to get this, these principles dialed in, sleep, movement, diet, and, and all of the other things that we consider lifestyle. And we'll talk a little bit more about if a person doesn't have a bajillion dollars, how can they do this? But this isn't rocket science either. This is actually pretty darn simple stuff with just a couple little tweaks here and there. That's generally how I help people achieve a home birth. And then they don't even need me. It's like, go and be with your midwife. You won't need me. I'm, I'm on backup, right. but I'm, I'm, you're going to be fine because you've been caring for yourself. And, and that's really what it comes down to. I, I 100% agree and support <laughs> that message. That's for sure. Let's just start to get into the weeds. If, if a person comes you know, to me and you're in my, my ear and they want to know one thing that they can do right now that isn't going to be costly, you know, it's not going to break their bank. But they want to do something that really helps to kind of shore this up, like the first step. I know Michael Pollan's advice, I think you, you actually wrote this in your book, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I feel like that's a pretty nice, what is it, seven words? That's a pretty nice summary. What would your advice be if I'm the doctor sitting in the chair or the, the patient who's listening? What is the one thing that you want to whisper in their ear? Yeah, well... I do appreciate Michael Pollan's contribution to the nutrition world. I did not quote that in my book because I don't agree with that yeah, um, yeah. statement, actually. Um, the first thing I would do would be to eat more protein. Uh, honestly, the, that could be the first and even the only thing. And, and I will tell you that my choice in, cho in choosing that as, as the number one thing, that if you asked me five, ten years ago, it probably would have been different. And I think some of this depends on the population you're working with, but having worked in, like I was describing a very low income setting and you have clients coming in drinking like a big gulp, um, it, it seems obvious to focus on just getting the sugar and refined carbohydrates out. So that might've been what I would have said in previous years, but I instead focus on displacement. Hmm. I mean, we do need to talk about refined carbohydrates and getting those out. I mean, there's, there's no benefit to a big gulp of uh, <laughs> red dye number 40 high fructose corn syrup <laughs> concoction. However, ultimately, even if you do take that out, what is going to take its place? So let's just start there. Yeah. And yeah. the research that has come out in the last 
seven years on protein is really fascinating. So first of all, the protein requirements in pregnancy were not really based on much data in pregnant women to begin with. And the first ever study that was done to directly estimate protein requirements in pregnancy came out in 2015. Mm. And that found that our protein requirements are set at least 73% too low uh, for late pregnancy. Another study came out and looked at protein intake among U.S. pregnant women, comparing them to the current super low guidelines or those so-called optimal guidelines that were suggested in that paper and found that 67% of women in late pregnancy, third trimester, were not meeting those goals. So this whole concept that the U.S. is a country of like protein overload and eating too much meat and animal products and and we need to reduce our protein intake and it's toxic to the kidneys or whatever you want to throw out. That's not true. Mm. It's simply not true. Mm. So I would focus on more protein. That is by far the most satiating uh, of your macronutrients. You know, fat comes in second, carbs come in third. So they keep you full. They do not spike your blood sugar. It's virtually impossible to eat whole overeat whole food protein it's so satiating that like you know these people who talk about sitting down to like a 12 ounce steak i mean you're really pushing it at the end of a 12 ounce steak right yeah but like how many bowls of cereal can you pour yourself how many glasses of juice can you drink you can get you can get the carbs in super super easily protein is a very self-limiting nutrient so not only is there that that side of it like we need more and most women are not eating enough, but also our protein rich foods. If we're talking about whole foods, whole food sources of protein, like meat and eggs and dairy product, nuts, seeds, legumes, that fish, seafood, these foods naturally are very micronutrient dense. And when you start looking at the micronutrients that are required in higher amounts in pregnancy, or that women are most likely to under consume or be deficient in, it's almost all the ones that are found in our protein-rich foods, mm. particularly our animal proteins primarily, although there's there's a handful of nutrients and plant proteins that would also be of value. So you're looking at your iron, your B12, your zinc, your copper, your vitamin A in the bioavailable retinol form, choline, selenium. I mean, you name it, these are the kinds of nutrients that you're going to find most concentrated in your animal proteins. And so nowadays, that's actually the first thing that I say. And another reason I focus on that versus something else that's also healthy, like fresh produce, for example, everybody knows that's healthy. That's like, this is a done deal. Right. Meat and protein, animal protein especially, has been so demonized that there's a huge stigma around eating more of it. Moreover, a lot of the protein-rich foods might be on these foods to avoid lists or mm. certain preparation methods of mm-hmm. them might be on mm-hmm. the foods to avoid lists. So there are already things that women are kind of afraid of, maybe for food safety reasons, or they're afraid of because they think saturated fat or cholesterol is going to give them heart disease, or they're afraid of it because it's going to hurt the planet or whatever it is. Um, There's so much stigma against them that I find I have to reiterate over and over, um, usually using some specific examples of micronutrients or amino acids or whatever, um, why we need to emphasize these more. And I see the biggest changes in people's health when they get enough protein, particularly at breakfast time. So that's the number one place I focus now, protein. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And so what I'm guessing, perhaps it's a conjecture, but I'm guessing that Michael Pollan, if he were here, he would probably be arguing for more of a vegetarian based diet. I haven't read 
his books for a long time. So that little phrase of eat whole, you know, what, what is it? Eat real food, mostly plants, whatever. Not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. yeah, not too much, mostly plants really gives this idea that you're eating small little plates filled with rice, whole wheat, you know, whole grains or whatever plants. And then maybe you're eating some meat. But what you're saying is let's flip that on its head. Um, one thing I did want to get into, into because, I mean, you, we just mentioned Rob Wolf and I, I helped organize some of the early paleo effects conferences and met all these, these people who've, who've been bestsellers and whatnot since then. In my family, we eat a ton of meat and fish and eggs and organ meats and all these other things. Let's talk a little bit about what you said, that the demonization of saturated fat is, is uh, very relevant in pregnancy because, because people are afraid. I mean, they've been, they've been sort of, uh, we've been sort of programmed to think that beef and everything is bad. On the other hand, there's a lot of bad beef out there. So we, on one hand, we have the demonization of saturated fat from Ansel Keys's work back in the 50s and 60s with his seven countries study, and then the Minnesota coronary study, I think is what it was called. And basically, the American Heart Association adopted the, the sort of generalized practice of avoid anything with saturated fat, which then prompted the fat-free foods that are just sugar, devoid of anything apart from sugar, because if you take the fat out, you have no flavors. You have to put a bunch of sugar in. Um, it also prompted the vegetarian and vegan movements, which I don't necessarily think is, like, I don't have, I don't even care to put an opinion on that. But in pregnancy, if you're vegan, you are going to be deficient in certain things. And I am willing to put my, I am, that's a hill I am willing to die on, where if you're not getting any animal products, you need to be very, very, very sure of how you're going about um, what you're putting into your body. So Tell me what you tell people whenever they say, I thought saturated fats were bad. It's going to raise my cholesterol and all this other stuff. <laughs> well, if we're just taking it from the saturated fat angle, that concept has been thoroughly tested and I would say debunked. Yeah. Especially over the last like 20 years. I feel like when, you know, when I was early in my nutrition training, there was still a lot of humming and hawing about it. And now it's like, there's really how how many randomized controlled trials and systematic review papers and meta-analyses do you need on the topic to understand that yes, saturated fat can impact your cholesterol. Does that have an overall huge impact on your cardiovascular risk or right. all-cause mortality? Right. Right. Um, and the answer is no. When it comes to the cholesterol component, it's been debunked that dietary cholesterol even has any effect on the blood on cholesterol, cholesterol whatsoever. So right. that one right. needs to be dead and buried altogether. There have also been some papers on the saturated fat front looking at um, you know, the relative impact on blood lipids or, or cardiovascular markers, looking at the saturated fat from processed foods mm. versus the saturated fat that is found in a whole foods matrix. The examples given in this research that I can recall is like red meat, whole fat dairy products, dark chocolate. And those are not associated with the things that some of these, you know, epidemiological studies that are lumping all of these findings together yeah. from yeah. flawed fr food frequency questionnaires into one, like, they're not having those same findings as some of the epidemiology. So we have to kind of, sometimes you have to unpack the history. I think Nina Teicholz has done mm. it really well in her book, Big Fat Surprise. If you start looking into the, you know, Ansel Keys work, even the origins, this is something I've been diving into very recently, the origins of the 
so-called Mediterranean diet. I didn't realize this, in, this until fairly recently that that is built on Ansel Key's work from his studies into very specific areas of Italy and Crete, a little island in Greece. And that is the, the whole underpinning of the entire concept of Hmm. the Mediterranean diet. Um, This, this idea that it's low in meat, low in saturated fat is actually not true. Totally bunk. I've connected with an Italian uh, culinary studies professor from the university of Rome, who's written extensively on this topic. She posts a lot of uh, food photos from Italy and you're showing, you know, sausage made with liver. There's all sorts (laughs) of cured meats. You got your aged cheeses, butter is used. Sure. There's olive oil as well. Yes. There's a lot of fresh produce. Yes. They have, you know, properly prepared whole grains and legumes and all these other things. But this idea that this so-called healthiest diet in the whole entire world is low in meat or saturated fat um, is wrong. The, The primary fat used to cook with was actually lard because a lot of families had a pig. You could raise a pig in a relatively small area. They could live off of food scraps from the kitchen and whatever's in the backyard. They're really easy to raise. And you'd harvest, a, you know, your pig every once in a while. You render all the lard. You cure most of the meat. Yeah, <laughs> it serves you it's for totally years. It's totally opposite <laughs> of the picture that they paint yeah, of this totally. so-called Mediterranean lifestyle. So uh, my opinion on the saturated fat thing is I think we've... Um, we were built upon a shoddy foundation from the very beginning. And then you end up with a whole bunch of shoddily done studies that are designed to prove the point from the previous work. And it takes unpacking over literally decades to disprove that original theory based on Ansel Key's very incomplete surveys of small areas. And then the cherry picked studies, cherry picked locations that he decided to put into the ultimate seven countries that Mm. made it into Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. his research. But if I've learned anything over these years, is it like, it doesn't take much to come up with like a concept and promote this as fact as like, you know, guidelines based, you know, information, but it takes a ton more work to undo whatever was the original theory. Yeah. That, that became en vogue that influenced the entire food industry I mean, ultimately, it's much easier to make a profit off of processed high carbohydrate foods or even seed oils from your subsidized seed crops than it is to make much money off of meat. Yeah, right, right. Dairy products, fresh produce, unprocessed beans those really don't make all that much money. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a complicated tale, but I personally don't put um, much stock in the the whole concept of saturated fat being bad. My other issue with it, aside from just the disastrous history, is that if you do try to eat a diet that's low in saturated fat, ultimately you're going to be taking out a lot of really nutritious things from the diet. So if you do try to really restrict your saturated fat intake, automatically your diet is going to be very low in meat and animal protein. Your diet is probably, if you're also worried about cholesterol, not going to include egg yolks and liver. Okay, great. Now we've set up a case of choline deficiency, which we know impairs fetal brain development, predisposes you to preeclampsia, predisposes you to liver problems, even brain problems for the adult brain. 
great because our our nutritionism focus just on cholesterol or just on saturated fat created this problem. Um, say you take all the skin off your chicken and, and you don't, you skim all the fat off of your broth and you cook with very little fat with any of your food. Okay. Taking the skin off your chicken is taken off one of the richest sources of mm. glycine, a mm. really important amino acid for you during pregnancy, for the growth of your, the expansion of your uterus, which has over 100% more glycine at the end of pregnancy than it did when you're pre-pregnant. Now you're going to have a weaker perineum. Your skin probably isn't going to be able to stretch as easily without a whole lot of tearing, which shows up as stretch marks. You're probably going to have some joint issues because you need a heck of a lot of collagen to support all of the ligament and joint changes that happen during pregnancy. Um, all because you were worried about the saturated fat in the skin. So there's always consequences. Anytime you start messing with nature, you're going to have carryover <laughs> consequences. And so th- that's my bigger argument against um, people being concerned about saturated fat is just like, okay, so how are you going to handle getting your retinol? How are you going to get your vitamin K2 unless you're eating a ton of natto? Mm. Your primary sources are going to be cheeses, organ meats, pork products. Um, Okay, where are you going to get your glycine? I guess, sure, you could do an isolated, you know, collagen powder. That's an extra thing you have to buy now. Okay. It just, you end up with lots of holes. It's like you start poking holes in the boat and you start sinking. And now you have to patch all the holes and hope they hold. (laughs) Why don't we just eat whatever, uh, you know, nature intended? And uh, then you have fewer holes that are going to be poked, fewer things that need to be filled, fewer supplements that are needed. When we suddenly uncover some research on a new nutrient that we didn't know about before, because there's plenty of them out there, or the role of some underappreciated nutrients like taurine, for example, we now know that that's really vital to fetal brain and uh, brain development and bone development. That's taurine. the animal foods hmm. and seafood products. Then what are we going to do? Because, well, we patched that hole, but we didn't know that this gap would create another hole. So now there's another thing that needs to right. be patched. It's like a 10-headed hydra. You just chop a head off and three more sprout up. You, you end up right. just in this cascade of, of problems to be solved that we've actually initiated by screwing around with what the body actually wants to do, which is to grow a baby and to not have to leach nutrients from elsewhere in the body in order to make sure that that baby is cared for. I mean, that's essentially what we're, what we are facing when we have these diets that are devoid in major, major whole families of amino acids and whatnot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And these are things that really are not uh, necessarily covered in the guidelines for pregnancy. I mean, certainly the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics thinks that a vegetarian vegan diet even is perfectly um, perfectly safe for pregnancy. And they, they mention a handful of nutrients in their very short policy paper on it, but they really don't get into the weeds on it very much. And they're certainly not talking about individual amino acids because the assumption is, well, if you can meet all the so-called essential amino acids right. <laughs> from a- any diet, which is true, you can meet the so-called essential ones um, on a so-called well-planned vegan diet. However, that's based on a lot of assumptions. 
And some of those assumptions are that some amino acids are non-essential. Yeah. And that's actually proven to be uh, not necessarily true. There have been some amino acid researchers coming out with the roles for many of these so-called non-essential amino acids, um, particularly when the body is in a period of stress. And pregnancy, postpartum, nursing absolutely counts as a period of increased demand. So we have a handful that we know are conditionally essential, glycine being one of them. Now we can add taurine to the list. There's a few others. But this isn't, our guidelines don't don't get anywhere close to this level oh, yeah. of detail and nuance that you think they do. They absolutely do not. There's really like, as long as you hit the RDA, the recommended daily allowance for protein, which we established earlier in this interview is already 73% too low, uh, then you're fine. And then just get a balance of different protein-rich foods throughout the day and you're fine. That's that's an incomplete and turns out totally in, incorrect um, answer and incorrect advice. And I think it misleads a lot of people. And sometimes you can get away with it, particularly if it's like your first pregnancy, you can really pull from your tissues as much as possible. I mean, our bodies are absolutely designed for the survival of the offspring, just like many species. And, and your body will catabolize its own nutrient stores even pulling from your brain, minerals from your bones to give that baby what it needs. And, and that is fabulous, but at what cost? Yeah. And so oftentimes when I see people who have had, I'm talking about 100% vegan pregnancies because I do think there's some tweaks you can make to a vegetarian diet to, to make it mostly um, adequate with minimal supplementation. Mm. And I, I mm -hmm. do cover that in chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy, by the way. Um, I'm talking about 100% uh, vegan pregnancies. Oftentimes they do run into issues conceiving the next child, or sometimes you run into some issues with that child's development, or sometimes like uh, Katya Nurturing Novas has been very open about her experience having multiple vegan pregnancies and her oldest child, her his, his teeth started crumbling at age two. So everything seems fine. Yeah. You have a healthy baby, 10 fingers, 10 toes. You seem to recover fine. You can even have another baby, another vegan pregnancy. Everything seems fine. But then the lifelong development of that child you see later on, uh-oh, there were some issues here. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. yeah, you lose your baby teeth around you know, six, seven or so. You start losing them. But they're not meant to crumble out of your mouth at age two. We're, we're really not designed to have rampant dental decay. Yeah, Dr. Weston-Price made that clear. Yeah, um, yeah. So some of this stuff takes like... Uh, you have to zoom out and have a little bit bigger macro lens on some of this stuff, in my opinion, and take in information from what other cultures did ancestrally in preparing couples for pregnancy and specific feeding of specific foods during and after pregnancy, and then start nitpicking at the different micronutrients that might be in there or amino acids that you can start kind of piecing together a bigger picture here of, okay, we're, we're not just looking at whether you can manage this, whether you can get by, fill in with extra supplements with your best guesses of what's required and what synergistic quantity, because that really is a best guess. But even when you do those things, you don't know what's going to come down the line for your child. So yeah. Yeah. do we want to just go at this from 
okay, and understanding that we have answers on some things and we don't have answers on other things. And we're going to do the best we can given, you know, confines of our, of our budget and whatnot to try to meet as many of those things through food as possible. Because I'll tell you, I didn't know any of the research on taurine in either of my pregnancies. And it's really lucky that I was eating animal protein and seafood that provided the taurine in there already. But if I had just chosen to, well, I'll fill in the gaps from the meat with a pea protein powder and extra beans and nuts and seeds, and I'll just take my B12 supplement for the B12, I'll take my algae DHA supplement for the DHA, I'll take my choline supplement for the choline, and I'm fine. I didn't even know that taurine could be a gap. Wow. Not to mention your body cannot actually produce so taurine's so-called non-essential amino acid. The idea is, okay, well, if it's non-essential, you don't have to eat it. Your body can make it from other things. Turns out that taurine synthesis is dependent upon vitamin B12. Mm. So if you're also B12 deficient, which is much higher prevalence among vegetarians and particularly vegans, because your only reliable sources are animal foods, then even if your body could theoretically make taurine, it can't without sufficient B12. So it just, yeah, it opens right. up a whole can of worms. And that's kind of what I try to explain to people is like just this can of worms that happens when you start taking out ancestral foods from your diet. You just, how many holes are there in yeah. the boat to fill? I don't even know. I can, I can lead you to, you know, the dozen that might show up, but we don't even, we're going to find name nutrients 20 years from now that we didn't know about now. Yeah. And we're going to be like, oh, wow, I'm really glad I included some salmon and sardines yeah. in my diet because I didn't know about this very particular peptide found in fish that has this role in prenatal development, right? We, yeah. We're just, we don't have names for all of those things yet. And we don't know what we don't know. And, and we, we've been implementing mechanisms of control over nature for far too long without learning from our lessons. You know, if you go to a big national park, right, where there's old growth forest and there's, there's a, you know, a, a, a foot of humus, it's almost like hard to walk through it. It's so squishy and there's stuff growing out of everywhere, every, you know, which place, every little crevasse. And you see how much life is there when nature is left untouched. Nature is highly intelligent. She knows this dark goddess energy runs deep. And then you look at our monocultural systems and how they're failing and the, the, the soil is becoming depleted and we can't get fruit. You know, we can't even actually get fertilization of these, of these or cross-pollination of these plants. And it's like, oh, it's deficient in magnesium or deficient in nitrogen or whatever else. And then we just put this stuff on there thinking, look, we've, again, we've plugged the hole in the boat, not even understanding, like, we don't know what we don't know. And we need to actually sometimes take a step back, relinquish that control, and allow the body to do what the body does. The, the term salutogenesis comes to mind. But we have to give the body the resources to do that. And so I, I love, I mean, I could just let you go for hours here because this is exactly what I think people need to hear. It's not even a matter of finding the ideal prenatal vitamin. Although, for many, many people, if you're doing all those things, adding a really high quality prenatal vitamin that has good choline, like uh, Full Will Fertility is the company that I, I, I recommend to everybody. If you have that, that's great. But that also doesn't replace all of your junk food. You can't use that as like the surrogate for, you know, uh, I've, I've got my nutritional 
space is covered because it has enough choline right. or whatever. You also need to be doing all these other things. And like you yep, said, it's, it's not an insurance policy, but it's not right. And, and I, right. I think right. even the founder of Fullwell would would agree that it is really an insurance policy and not a replacement for food. It just happens to be a really comprehensive one in terms of filling the gaps because yeah. you have some brands that just cherry pick eight or 12 nutrients, put it in a bottle and call it a day. So it's <laughs> yeah. nice to have one that's more comprehensive. But, you know, I, I think I think back to the, you know, even the soil fertility conversation. My father is an arborist. And so we we are very plant tree friendly cool. kind, of, yeah. kind of a family. And we're always talking about soil fertility and leaving the leaf litter and um, mulching for, for the nutrients for the trees. But when I was in college, I took a course on uh, pesticides, public policy, and the environment, which is very interesting. Rachel plant, Carson plant soil, uh, insect could have taught sciences the class. Department. <laughs> and, and I actually wrote a paper on the interrelation between plant health and human health and was drawing some parallels on the use of things like compost and biodynamics for improving soil fertility far beyond the NPK fertilizers, yeah. <laughs> which I think might've gone over the professor's head a little bit because she was like a very pro industrial act, like pro pesticide, judicious, judicious use of pesticides, sure, but very sure. pro science for improving our, our crops and our soil and whatever. Yeah. And I recently came across a paper, there was pretty limited research back then, but I managed to pull it together. But I've seen some papers now looking at compost and like humic and fulvic acids that are in compost and in really healthy soil at mitigating toxicity of a lot of these really persistent pollutants. Some of these... Um, organochlorine, organophosphate kind of pesticides that just they're, they're kind of on the list of forever chemicals. They never break down mm. and really healthy soil, the application of compost and manure and these other things, which like inoculates the soil with all of these microbes and whatever you actually are giving the soil, the, the raw ingredients, so to speak, to break some of these down and then mitigate the amount of those chemicals that actually end up wow. in the plant. I mean, there's so many parallels between plant and human health, and it gets a little bit um, out there for some people, but it's absolutely related. <laughs> it's absolutely related. It's interesting that you say that because plants, we don't look at plants as the sum of parts. We look at the beauty of the entire plant and knowing that there's just as elaborate of a root system on there and how it, you know, they orient themselves within the mycelial networks and they can all communicate. Yet humans, we seem to not be able to even look at ourselves as elegant. It's just a, a bunch of organs that all need polishing up separately. And if you put in the right premium fuel and take this and this supplement and this supplement, then everything's going to be okay. But we are even far more complicated than trees. And... For some reason, I don't know why, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a, a strain for people. But I think most people would say like, oh, wow, the trees more than they don't even see it as like the automobile, the Cartesian sort of reductive automobile model. But they see humans like that and they expect that we're going to we just need the right inputs. We need to press the right buttons and everything goes well, like we're some sort of motherboard. And yeah. obviously we're not. It's far more complicated, but that's also why it's fun being people like us. So Right. Yeah, it's fun. And, and I mean, I think some people would argue against me like oh you're not taking enough of a holistic lens because you're focusing on all this research and what it's whatever the 
researchers have decided to study funded by whatever industry, you know, people can have those same complaints about myself, but in a way I like to kind of turn it back on people. You know, I can use that body of evidence to give you rationale for trusting what your ancestors did, because for some people thinking in terms of trusting what their ancestors did and living close to the earth and all of these things that sound all hippy dippy to people that's not enough. They want this sort of like hard facts and data and statistics. And I mean, my brain certainly enjoys that. I like kind of uncovering one little tiny mechanism of how this thing sort of works. And I'm sure there's like a hundred others that we don't know yet, but we do know this part. And this is pretty cool to at least give people the rationale because I know from having read, you know, Weston Price's work and Sally Fallon's work, years and years ago, literally as a teenager, I read that. That's, that's not, that's not always presented in a way that's, that's digestible for a very like science forward, show me the data, show me the numbers um, kind of a person, which really is a lot of people. And particularly if you're going to start poking holes at the dietary guidelines you can't approach it from a hippy dippy angle. You need to see the study showing that the RDA for vitamin B12 is set at least threefold too low. Yeah. You yeah. need to see the citation for that. Then you need to read the method. Then you need to, you know, that you need that right. information right. in order to change your mind. And since so many of us grew up in households that were, you know, following the guidelines or surrounded by processed foods and whatnot, you, you need that reassurance that what you're doing is not crazy and out there <laughs> yeah. because I think that's also where people get caught up. It's like, well, uh, I'm kind of uncomfortable eating egg yolks because that's going to give me heart disease <laughs> or I'm uncomfortable. You know, uh, can I really have like a sip of my kombucha because, oh my gosh, it's fermented and it's raw or it has trace amounts of alcohol. Like you need to give people the data on those things. Otherwise you, you just have people living in perpetual fear and not not feeling comfortable eating anything. Yeah. And uh, not only on a nutritional angle, what effect does that have? But on a psychological level, if you're constantly filled with anxiety over what you're doing, potentially being wrong or potentially harming your baby, what effect does your persistently elevated cortisol have on your health and your baby's development? You know what I mean? So Absolutely. it's like we have to look at this from a couple of different angles. What What I would always... I don't know how much you know about my practice, but I provide whole person comprehensive maternity care. And that means that I have to do as little as possible to care for you. And what I always tell people is they're worried about Rogam or antibiotics or any of the other anti-medicines that we use or um, Pitocin or induction or C-sections. And like, is it safe? Is it not safe? What I always tell people, and this might be something you can use for your not detractors, but people that become hypercritical because they, they can't see outside of the box, is that the burden of proof always lies in those who wish to deviate from nature, period. So what I actually mm-hmm. find that my, I'm, I'm, I had to argue my way through residency because I didn't want to intervene in pregnancy. And they're like, but they haven't changed for four hours their cervix. You need to start Pitocin and all this other stuff. It's like, just, she's, it's her first baby. She's been laboring for five hours. Like she needs more time. We shouldn't even have admitted her. We should have sent her home. And, and, you know, I would carry around this accordion file of all these papers that would help support my desire to not intervene, which sounds totally twisted, but we shouldn't need 
So, so what you're getting to is that the cholesterol thing, right? If yeah. we're going to just use data to support the intervention that deviates from nature, then we've got a problem because people like you, you and me, who are trained to do this, who've read so much medical literature, not just the abstract, not just the PubMed entry, but like we had to actually go in and then cross-reference and all this other stuff in order to make a living. What you find is I'm actually utilizing medical literature now to actually refute many of the guidelines which tell me that I sh it's okay to deviate from nature, which is totally right. twisted on its head. And that's a problem in medical yeah. The medical publication industry right now, where you know you need to tell you need to show me. I don't use the word proof because that's a mathematical concept, but you need to demonstrate for me through your clinical research that without a doubt that deviating from nature is actually better than letting nature do its thing. And that's something we really grapple with, I think, in all of the medical and the in the clinical sciences. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, particularly with birth. Oh <laughs> <laughs> so. well, yeah, you've been through it, so. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, what you're describing is precisely why I chose to have my babies at home. And I implemented a lot of these things, basically everything that I write about to try as hard as I could to not risk out of that option. <laughs> you know what I mean? To make sure that it was actually um, particularly safe and there would be as, as few detractors from that choice as possible. So it all it all comes full circle. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. And I think a lot of I think a lot of times you do have to go back to the history of many of these practices and then you, you start to kind of uncover right. the ugly truth, you know, right. go into the right. history of, we talked about Ansel Keys or go into the history of dietetics, go into the history of obstetrics, man, that's mm. a dark, that's a dark history. rabbit hole there. And then, <laughs> but you can at the same time be an agent for change within those professions. So yeah. You know, there's yeah. some people in kind of the more holistic nutrition world who just see my credentials and write me off entirely because, oh, well, you were trained in conventional dietetics. And it's like, well, yeah, I was, but I was also introduced to, you know, ancestral nutrition far before I even went through my dietetics training. Yeah. So not all yeah. of us go through our training with rose-colored glasses on, seeing everything that we're taught all these doctrines as fact. Um, many of us do question. So yeah. you can use your time in university internships, residency, and even throughout your career to actually look at the data on some of these things and, and pull up, see if you can either corroborate or refute right. the evidence right. on both sides, whether you're looking at the conventional guidelines, or you're looking at some wild theory that you read about in like a raw foodist book, because I've read a lot of those too. I've read a lot of the vegan books. I've read all sorts of different dietary philosophy books. And then you can go back and kind of cross check mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and see, and not only from, you know, the, the white paper research angle and PubMed and whatnot, but also from the experience that you have with clients, the experience you have with your own body and observation, your experience in like being outside, like visiting farms or trying to grow food or whatever it is. Um, those are all really useful pieces of information that you can, that you can use again to like, does this support or refute what I've been taught? Yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah. think some people see the credentials and there's automatic assumptions. Like on. you're one of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
I know we're, we're running out of time, Lily. I have one more question for you. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, three things I always tell people that, you know, this even could potentially replace your prenatal vitamins, but three things I tell people to eat in pregnancy are a really high quality bone broth, ideally something you've made from bones you've gotten from your biodynamic farm, which we are lucky to have 20 minutes down the road. Organ meats, whether encapsulated or fresh, cooked liver, for example, um, really, really hard to palate for me. But um, the third one is a fermented cod liver oil um, that I generally use green pastures, which is the one that is not, it's like not, but is kind of endorsed by the Weston A. Price Foundation. And so I wanted to know, first off, is there anything you would add to that as like nature's multivitamin? And then the second question for you is, what are three things? You're pregnant, you're on a desert island, and, and you've got three foods you can have with you that are going to sustain you until you get, you, you get to safety. So those are the, the two final questions for you. You can do rapid fire if you'd like. Okay. Well, I, I don't disagree with, um, with any of your options necessarily. I think I could add to it potentially. Yeah. One thing that maybe I should have highlighted a little more in Real Food for Pregnancy is shellfish. Mm. Shellfish are also really nutrient-dense. Um, quite a few cultures, if they were coastal living, emphasize shellfish as, as like a fertility and oh, yeah. uh, pregnancy food yeah. foods for couples who are going to be conceiving soon. I get all of my men, the, the male infertility factor patients, I get them all eating oysters and it almost always mm -hmm. fixes it. But anyways, go on. <laughs> Absolutely. Because not only do you get tons of zinc and selenium, yep. iodine, DHA, iron, copper, so you Loaded. can actually utilize the iron. You get some retinol, not quite as concentrated as, uh, as liver, but you get some, you get B12 in really high amounts. Um, it's also really high in taurine which is like a ah, master taurine. antioxidant yeah. um, in the system. And, and sperm is particularly high in taurine, interestingly. So anyways, um, I would add shellfish to the list. I have an article on my website on, on shellfish that I can point people to if they want to read more. I also have one on liver and organ meats and how to get creative on incorporating that into your diet if it's not something you, uh, you grew up on. I've had some people reach out to me and tell me that they – you know, well, I grew up eating organ meats. They're, they're not from the States typically. And so I find it weird that you talk about trying to hide liver and like ground meat recipes. Like we love liver over here. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of it is just like, if your palate, it was exposed to it and exposed to it repeatedly as a child. But anyways, um, absolutely. Liver would be on the list. I would add eggs as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not that eggs are more nutrient dense than liver or shellfish, but they're, it's easy to get a larger volume of them down the hatch. Um, and generally speaking, when it comes to choline, eggs are the most reliable dietary source simply because like ounce per ounce compared to liver, it's about the same concentration of egg, like a, you know, one egg versus one ounce of liver. They're, it's both about the same amount of choline, but you can eat more eggs than yeah. you can liver. And so more than half of the choline taken in in the U.S. diet is typically coming from eggs directly. So I usually would add eggs in there. They tend to be pretty well tolerated, particularly in stages when um, nausea and food aversions might be hitting. Usually you can at least get down like scrambled eggs with some like cheddar cheese and salsa, maybe yeah. in a tortilla, yeah. like that you can get down. You might not be as likely to be able to get down liver or cooked fish or something like that. I think there's there's a place for so many different foods that it's hard for me to choose 
from the many options, but I, I, there's a place for fresh produce. I think we both agree on that front, um, even though we both agree that our animal foods are, are the most nutrient dense. So I think there's a place for fresh produce. If people tolerate it, really good quality, full fat dairy products mm. can also fill many important uh, nutrient gaps in the diet. And it, a lot of this is dependent upon which of these foods you're eating or are not eating. So like if you're not eating dairy, then I really hope you're eating fish, particularly fish that have small bones that are softened completely by the cooking or canning process. So you can eat them because that's going to be yeah. your most bioavailable calcium source. If you're not doing dairy, that's something to think about. If you're not doing dairy, I hope you're eating organ meats because dairy is one of our best sources of riboflavin, which you need for the metabolism of, of folate in the body. It's the cofactor for the MTHFR enzyme. So there's some of these things where it's like, you can get by by taking out maybe one of them, but I hope you're filling in the gaps with one of the others, so to speak. Um, but all the ones you have on the list, I, I would agree with. And I think possibly I would, I would uh, focus more on like a whole food source versus necessarily cod liver oil. Cause I think you can get the goods of cod liver oil in terms of like fat soluble vitamins and DHA from having the combination of both fish and shellfish and organ meats like liver. But if you're not doing that regularly, then cod liver oil fills a really important void yeah. for some of those yeah. things. Yeah. So take your pick, pick and choose. I totally. Guess. Well, I think also in, in the way you answer that, there's not a one size fits all approach here. It's really, what are you able to palate? Um, what are yeah. you, what are you, uh, you know, if you're, if you're super, you know, lactose intolerant going, even if you're getting the non-pasteurized raw dairy, whole fat stuff from the guy, we have a guy here who's, who brings it to us you know, along with the cheese and the butter and all that other stuff. If for some reason you can't handle that, then you've got yeah. to find a different option, then but it's, it's not the right food for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So to say that, um, um, everybody should go out and eat a 16 ounce steak every single day is also like probably impractical at best. And, um, and perhaps like, you know, and a little, probably most women don't actually need 16. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Every day. So totally. we can talk about, you totally. know, the benefits of protein and animal foods, but a lot of people kind of contort and twist this into something that it isn't. Um, which is for, you know, an average sized woman, a three, four, five, maybe six ounce piece of animal protein at a meal is going to be plenty. You right. know, I'm a little right. bit smaller ish and not as active as some of these, you know, CrossFitters and whatever. Three, four ounces is often great for yeah. a meal for me. So right. you don't and it fills to, you like, up too. Like four... down the hatch yeah. if it's not fitting, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and a lot of it depends on, yeah, your appetite at stage of pregnancy and whatnot. You know, your your other half of the question is, if you could only pick three foods, what would you bring? It'd probably be some combination of what, yeah. what yeah. I just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I probably wouldn't choose entirely from the most nutrient-dense things because some things you just need something that's easy to get, like, a you know, a volume of. So I might do... And it depends on if you're going to limit me to a single ingredient food. If it's like a meal, that would be a little bit easier. But no, a single be... ingredient. You're you're got 48 hours, and you got, or let's say a week, and you got to just sustain yourself. Yeah, I, I would probably do, you know, eggs, either 
liver or some kind of fish. And then I'd probably actually balance that with something, something that's a plant that I can eat a lot more of. Yeah. Yeah. Like sweet potato or something like that. Um, kind of fill the void. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, I, I need like, you know, I need a little more, I don't want to call it a filler food because I kind of talk down about like <laughs> white flour filler foods, but whole loaf of bread, that, like a starch actually yeah. kind of fills yeah. your stomach yeah. a little bit because you're, you're going to max out on eggs. You're going to certainly max out on liver, fish and shellfish, but something that could be a, a pair with that. You don't need to go full ketotic. If you're in survival mode, I actually would want to have a carb source. So I'd probably yeah. choose something like a sweet potato. <laughs> That's fair. Thanks for playing the game, Lily. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, sorry to put you on the spot there with that one. Real, I know you got to go real quickly. Where do you? What do you want people to know about where they can find you? We'll put links to your books and everything else. Um, Instagram, whatever. What do you want people to know? Well, you can find me online. My website is lilynicholsrdn.com. And up there, I have the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free, um, along with a bunch of other freebies. There's 250 plus blog articles up there. So most of which tend to be at least my more recent content tends to be pretty, you know, dense and uh, research heavy. So have a look through those. I, you know, I have an article on vegetarian diets in pregnancy. I have an article on liver. I have an article on shellfish. I have an article on folate versus folic Mm. acid. There's an article on vitamin D in pregnancy. Take your pick, use the search bar to find certain things or just scroll through the blog. There's a lot up there. I do link out to my books from there as well and where you can find those. And then as far as social media, it's the same as my website to keep it simple. So um, these days I'm mostly on Instagram and it's at Lily Nichols RDN. Right on. We'll link everything in the uh, episode description. Lily, thank you for spending some time with me. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lily, for being on the show. In review, I wanted to provide somebody listening with the sort of grand picture of what to eat in pregnancy. It's not the whole picture, but it's a sure darn good way to start. Eat meat, eat plants, eat sweet potatoes. Make sure all of your produce in your livestock is organic. If it's livestock, free range, grass-fed, biodynamic if possible. Keep as much chemicals off your food as you can. Make sure you're eating as nutrient-rich and dense food as possible, including fish, fish oil, eggs, organ meats, all of the grass-fed protein sources that I talked about. And get yourself a really good prenatal vitamin as icing on the cake. And fortunately, we are partnered with Fullwell Fertility. Go to fullwellfertility.com and use code BELOVED10. Save 10% on the best prenatal vitamin on the market. If you're doing all of the dietary stuff that Lily talks about in her books, make sure you go and get her books. It's They're called, again, uh, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Get her books. Follow her advice. She is the real deal. She's a mom. She's been through this herself, and she has done her homework. If, uh, if you have any doubts, go to her website. I'll link everything in the description in the episode. And then follow it up with Full Well Vitamins, uh, pre- prenatal vitamins. And then our other sponsor, of course, Get Fit for Birth. That's the other part of this is you've got to be exercising. Doctors don't tell you much about nutrition or exercise. Fortunately, we've got partners here to tell you. And I actually do a lot of coaching for clients in this. I mean, this is like basically all that I do. So 
getfitforbirth.com is James Goodlatte's website. Go to uh, getfitforbirth.com slash beloved or use code beloved and you'll save 20% on any of his coaching programs, whether you're a woman seeking coaching or you're a coach looking to coach pregnant women. James has got it all on his website. That's getfitforbirth.com slash beloved or use code beloved. You'll save 20% on all of their programs. Amazing to have these sponsors. Amazing to know people like Lily. It's just so great that there are people like Lily that are doing this from the grassroots. You're not going to find it at your doctor because that's not your doctor's job. Don't go to your to a car salesman looking to buy a house, right? You Don't go to a doctor to learn nutrition and exercise. We've got plenty of other resources for that. So thank you for listening again to my show. This is my personal pet project and I'm having so much fun. I'm so grateful to be able to do this for everybody. And um, I learned so much from these interviews myself. Don't get me wrong, guys. Like, we're nobody is a full expert on anything. That's why this is so much fun. We're constantly learning new things. If you want to find me and work with me one-on-one as as your doctor, you can go to BelovedHolistics.com, schedule a 30-minute discovery call. Just make sure there's good chemistry there, and then you can buy a package, and we will get you working at the uh, tip-top of your operating system, so to speak. I also uh, have a collaborator program from reasonable monthly, monthly fee. Whether you're a health coach, a check practitioner, a doula, birth educator, midwives are really, I'm finding a lot of midwives that are really benefiting from this program. I offer collaborative services for all of the above. And um, basically, this is a way of keeping your patients and clients from out of the hospital system, keeping them at home, keep them on the right path towards optimal health for them and their babies, whether or not they're pregnant, really. I mean, these these services are, uh, are very, very comprehensive. So uh, you can find my collaborator program on the website as well. I have a newsletter. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet and you do sign up, that's also at belovedholistics.com. You'll get a free ebook. If you signed up before the ebook was available, just email me and I'll send it to you. No big sweat. No no big deal. It's really a it's it's short, but it's 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 dense with information. Five guiding principles for empowered healing and birthing on your own terms. I'm also available on Instagram. Nathan Riley OBGYN is my handle. Please find me, please follow me. Please find Lily, follow her. Go to Fit for Birth. Go to Fullwell you are going to have everything you need in order to live your best life if you follow these resources. So thank you so much, guys. I will see you next time on the Holistic Obi-Joanne podcast. Take care, everybody.